we're going to continue in our series in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen for you so you can track with us this morning. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, if you go to the bookstore at, at the comments, Aaron will set you up and make sure that you get one. And then uh, you can take that. That's a, your gift. You take it home. You bring it back and, uh, and work through that together. My wife and I have uh, three children, ages three, two, and nine weeks. So um, we get a lot of sleep at our house. Um, the, uh, the oldest is in a really interesting phase right now, um, the three-year-old, my three-year-old daughter, because she has begun an exploration into the art of negotiation. And um, this usually happens around bedtime, and it includes a lot of, but dad, or her, her new line is, hey, dad, I've got a great plan is what she'll tell me. That's how I know something, something's coming. And it usually involves, you know, why it's not time for bed or why we don't need pajamas tonight or why we should own a puppy and kind of all these things. And, you know, at first it was kind of cute just to see how our little depraved mind works, but now it's <clears throat> kind of annoying and requires discipline. But, you know, it reminds me of this, this past where we are, and it reminds me of the reality that we are all schemers. We are all negotiators, we all do things to try to get people to see um, our point of view or get on board with us, or at least uh, try to communicate in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves, especially in this area of sin. If you've been tracking with us through our series in the Book of Romans, and week after week we've been dealing with the reality that we're all sinners. And maybe those are the kind of conversations that you've been having either with yourself or with God or the people in your house that you're really not as bad as what everybody's been saying. You're not as bad as what God says of us. In 1992, the House of Representatives voted to reveal the names of all past and present members who had bounced checks at the House Bank. So once upon a time, there used to be these things called checks, and there were some people in the House of Representatives who bounced them. The list included 355 names. One member wrote 972 bad checks. The most interesting of these members was a man named Charles Wilson from the great state of Texas. And when asked about his bad checks, he gave the following excuses or defenses. This is what he said. It's not a crime like child abuse. Translation, it's not so bad. He said, if you've ever bounced a check, vote for me. If not, vote for my opponent. Translation, everybody does it. And then he said, the system was fouled up, which translates to, it's not my fault. And then lastly, he said, it's no big deal. Translation, it's no big deal. <laughs> this is not a rant against members of Congress. For one, I only have 35 minutes here. But um, the, the bigger reason is because we're just like them. We're, we're all the same. And that illustration serves as a lesson to how we react when we get caught. Because we instinctively make excuses for our behavior. Excuse making is nothing new. It's been that way since Adam blamed Eve in the garden. If you remember in Genesis, God said, look, you can eat of anything in the garden. Just don't eat of the fruit of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. They, of course, do. So God asked Adam, who told you to eat the fruit? And Adam answers, quite truthfully, it was that woman you gave me. And in one sentence, he blames God and Eve and kickstarts generations of finger-pointing between men and women. But God doesn't buy that excuse. 
Because he knows when we make these excuses, we are merely arguing to avoid having the truth, which is the reality of his righteousness, hit home. You see, we have a culture where we are not on trial. God is on trial. We have a culture of of self-esteem and self-promotion that lowers our self-awareness and puts God at a distance. We see ourselves as innocent people, and innocent people do not need mercy. Innocent people can make demands. And only sinners can know God's mercy, which is why we've been spending so much time there. And that's why Paul opens his letter like the way that he does. Because the most urgent, important discovery in all of life is to know who God really is and who we really are and how much he really loves us in our very real guilt. And it's the gospel that takes us to that quiet place of humility and reverence and surrender to God where we experience the goodness of God. And that's where Paul is driving us to this letter. If you're a fan of courtroom drama, like you get really excited when they have the Law and Order marathon on, uh, you're really going to dig today's passage because that's kind of the scene of what's happening. Paul is this sort of prosecuting attorney and he's about ready to rest his case. His indictment on the human race is complete. And, and if you haven't been here, here's what he said. The whole human race is under the wrath of God. The the first fact was that Gentiles are sinners. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. The second fact is that the moral people are sinners. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. And the third fact is that we saw a few weeks ago when Tom taught, the Jews are sinners. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29. So the whole human race, considered in its various parts, stands condemned before God. And just before Paul can present his his closing arguments, if you will, he kind of turns the flow of the argument towards these objections that he probably encountered in his interactions with Jewish leaders in the different synagogues throughout the Roman world. And so he kind of takes a little bit of a side to deal with them. And that's where we are in Romans chapter 3. So read with me, if you will. Again, if you don't have a Bible with you here today, the text will be up on the screen. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And Paul says, look, I speak in a human way. Verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and Paul says, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. And ask God to help us in understanding this passage and to really hear from him this morning. So I don't want us to just kind of rush into this moment like it's just some guy who's giving a speech about a particular text. I want God to speak to us this morning. And so um, I I feel that burden because I want to hear from God this morning. And I feel that burden because I want you to hear from God this morning. So um, I want to invite you to pray with me. So let's bow our head, close our eyes, and let's pray. And ask God to help us this morning. God, I love you. And um, God, I, I love what we have already proclaimed. And God, what we've already asked. Um, 
God, that your kingdom would come. God, that your kingdom would come in our lives. God, I pray that your kingdom would come in, in this moment and, and, and just the brief time that we have together this morning. Um, God, your, your word is so important, so precious. God, it, it is, it's life to us. It's nourishment to us. And so, God, we just pray today that you would, um, by your spirit, illuminate the scriptures. God, I ask that I would be controlled by your spirit. Um, God, that my words would be measured. God, we want to know you um, in, a, in a deeper and more intimate way. And so, God, I just pray that you would bring um, fresh revelation this morning. God, help me. God, help us, I pray. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. This passage is, is kind of difficult. I was talking to Matt Dresbeck earlier, and I said, this, these kind of passages are kind of difficult for me to teach. I'm kind of like the Dr. Seuss of preaching, and so this is a little bit tough for me. But the, the flow of the argument is not too hard to, to follow. We're, we're going to look at three objections and then three answers to those objections from this text. There's about nine questions that get answered, and from those nine questions, we're going to pull these three main objections. And each objection begins with the phrase, if I am a sinner, if I am a sinner, and, and, and here's why, because the Jews did not object to the notion that the Gentiles were sinners, as Paul stated, nor did they object to the theoretical notion that they were sinners, but they could not and would not accept that they were sinners before God on an equal basis with the Gentiles. So the first objection is this, Paul, if I am a sinner, why be religious? Paul, if I'm a sinner, like you say I am, then why be religious? And we see that in verse 1 and 2. The Jews essentially were objecting to Paul's teaching about universal sinfulness because in their mind, it destroyed their special standing with God. So they posed the question, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And they kind of expected Paul to say, well, there really isn't any. But Paul turns it on its head and he said, there is much in every way. It's a great advantage. First of all, you've been entrusted with the very words of God. And the Jews felt uh, that because they were God's chosen people, they stood in special relationship to God. And part of that was true. The Jews were and are God's chosen people. But the fact that that, that fact does not negate the reality of their sinful condition before God. So in essence, their, their objection goes like this. If we're sinners like the Gentiles then why bother being Jewish? Why keep the law? Why follow the Ten Commandments? Why the sacrifices? Why not just give it all up? Because this, their thinking was this. Our special favor means special privilege. They thought our special favor means special privilege for us. And Paul doesn't deny that they stand in special relationship with God. We see that in verse 2. After all, they have been given the very word of God. But what Paul is implying is this. Special favor means special responsibility. God expects more, not less from the Jews because they were given so many favors by God. The scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. You know that? And so Paul is saying, in essence, look, it's still better to serve God and to keep the law, but that doesn't give you any special favors from God. Your privileges don't get you off the hook. They get you on the hook. So Ray Stedman has this illustration, I think, that's really helpful about this. So he says, suppose there is an island that's completely shrouded in darkness. And on that island, there's a group of people um, who are given these pen lights. And the, and the pen lights illuminate about one foot in front of their path. 
And, and the only way to get off of this island is a narrow footbridge. And so they spend all their time with their pen light, shrouded in darkness, trying to find this footbridge. And Ray Stedman says there's another group of people, and this group of people is given a powerful searchlight or spotlight, and it's able to cut through the darkness, and it can see for miles and miles and miles. And their responsibility is to not only find this footbridge and thereby find rescue for themselves, but also to lead other people in rescue. But he said instead, they spend all their time and their searchlight looking for needles and haystacks. And he says, what would the judgment be on the people with the searchlight? Because they wasted the light they were given. Now we have to put this in our own kitchen, church. What is the judgment on us? At this point in human history, we have more access to information about Jesus, the scriptures, church, Christianity, than ever before. Podcasts, commentaries, websites, Bible apps, megachurches, multi-site churches, multi-congregational churches, networks, denominations, it goes on and on and on. But like Tim said a couple weeks ago, this has not led to more passionate and obedient Christ followers. We have a knowledge surplus and an obedience deficit. The only thing that seems to be growing is our preferences as to what style of church we will attend. So what is the judgment on us? The law was like a searchlight, Paul says, to help people find God, but the Jews, instead of lighting the way to God, they were using it to argue over trivial things like how far they could walk on the Sabbath or whether or not it was a sin to spit on the Sabbath. And so the Jews were doubly guilty. They didn't obey the law themselves, and they didn't use it to help other people. So the first objection, if I'm a sinner, why be religious, fails because the Jews weren't meeting the responsibilities that came with their special favor from God in the first place. The, sep- the second objection is this. If I'm a sinner, why not give up on God since he's given up on us? So the Jews would say, Paul, if you say that I'm a sinner, why would I not just give up on God since he has given up on us? And this objection follows the trajectory of the first one. The Jews, perhaps for a second, they concede that they are sinners. But if they are sinners, if that is true, then they might as well just forget about the promises of God that he made to Israel. Because God made them a deal, and according to Paul, the Jews didn't hold up their end of the bargain, so it just stands to reason that God's not going to keep his end of the bargain either. Which, of course, is operating under this premise that God's promises are conditional on our performance. God's basic promise in Genesis chapter 12 to the nation of Israel was not conditional. It was rooted in and rested on the faithfulness of God alone. So here's how Paul answers this in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 4, he says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In, in, In simple terms, the objection that Paul is facing goes like this. God gives up on people when they sin. And a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people in this room this morning, you feel that way. You feel like, man, my my life is just absolutely shredded. And it's my fault. I wrecked it. I made bad decision after bad decision. And so it's really difficult for you to come in and and go to a church service and listen to a a message and, and sing these songs or when communion comes by, forget it, because you just think, I have completely wrecked my life. I am too far gone. 
um, for God to, to do anything to help me or to want anything to do with me. You've concluded, just like this argument here concludes, that sin disqualifies you from God's grace. Here, here's freedom this morning for you. Sin is a prerequisite for God's grace. Listen to Paul's answer. Let God be true and every man a liar. He's saying, look, God never gives up on his children. Your sin is not greater than God's grace. It doesn't make your sin any less sinful. and It doesn't excuse disobedience, but it does mean that God's forgiveness is not limited by your sinfulness. In order to prove his point, Paul includes a quote from Psalm 51, which was a a song of confession that was composed by David after his sin with Bathsheba. And the verse that Paul quotes here is one where David is proclaiming that what happened to him demonstrated God's justice. So David's sin, God judged him, thus proving that God is righteous in everything that he does. And after God judged him, he forgave him proving that God's grace is greater than man's sin. The point is this, God is willing to forgive. The application is is this, not all of the sins of the Jewish race could cause God to break his promises. Paul's saying, look, if every man in the world turns out to be a liar, God will still be true to his word. And David is a great illustration of this point because David was an adulterer and a liar and ultimately a murderer and God still forgave him. The last objection is this. If I'm a sinner, if I'm a sinner, why bother obeying? If I'm a sinner, why bother obeying? The argument goes like this. Paul is saying David's sin gave God a chance to demonstrate both his justice and his grace. If David hadn't sinned, God would never have had the chance to judge him or forgive him. So in a sense, David was helping God out by sinning. And if that's the case, then whenever I sin, I'm also helping God out. But if my sin helps God out, how can he judge me for being a sinner? Anybody feel like you're arguing with a three-year-old at bedtime right now? And Paul's at that place in the argument. He gets gets really frustrated. We're going to see. Because the person who takes this stance is really accusing God of using sin to his own advantage. And and that line of thinking leads to a pretty absurd conclusion. If our sin gives God a chance to demonstrate his faithfulness and judgment and and his grace and forgiveness, why not sin more so God can forgive more? We have a really excellent fire department. Why not light more fires so they can do an excellent job at putting out fires? So we do have to wrestle with, because I've had these conversations before, We do have to wrestle with this. Does my sin glorify God? This objection is in the text uh, three different times. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? In verse 7, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still considered a a sinner? In verse 8, let us do evil that that good may result. So the flaw is pretty easy for us to spot. It's a lie that says, when I sin, I'm doing God a favor which is one of Satan's oldest lies. He's saying, look, the end justifies the means. And so, Paul, you can kind of tell that he's frustrated here in in the letter because his answer is very succinct. He just says, look, that's stupid. He offers the strongest possible objection that he can in the Greek and shuts it down right away. 
this line of thinking, this objection kind of breaks down for two reasons. The first is, if sin somehow glorifies God, then how can God judge the world? If that's the thinking, then that just absolutely turns morality on its head. Because if God never judges the, the world, then, then we're just plunged into this abyss of, of immorality and relativism and, and bottomless pit of just evil and, and filth. There is no standard for righteousness. And the second, if sin glorifies God, how can he judge the people who say such things? And, and Paul, this is how you can tell he's fed up, because he doesn't really even answer the question. He just says, look, if you think that way, your condemnation is just. And, and here's why Paul gets so fired up about that. Because there's a huge difference between a sincere seeker, a repentant person, and someone who's just making excuses. A few weeks ago in his message, Tim talked about a, a gal who came forward after another message on sin, and she just said, okay, that's it. That's me. What do I do? And I love that story because I love the simplicity of it, and I love the vulnerability of it, and I love the openness of it, and I love the honesty of it, and I love all of those things because it's evidence of the Spirit of God working in a life to where someone just says, I'm undone. That's it. I quit. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Now what do I do? Paul David Tripp has this quote, and he says, Grace isn't about treating wrong as if it's all right, because wrong is never all right. That's why the grace of rescue and forgiveness is so precious. Amen. So we're faced with this reality. We make excuses for our sin. We, we see these objections. They're objections that are not far from objections that we've made or are a version of those objections. Okay, so now what do, what do I do, Paul? You've kind of laid all that out for me. What do I do? If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 32. David writes a song um, that would be sung in congregations or corporate worship. So this is a song that the whole gathering would, would sing out loud in Psalm chapter 32. And, and I want to... I want to end with this and talking about this in the, in the next 10 minutes or so because I think so often we can get kind of buried under, okay, I do that wrong, I do that wrong, I do that wrong. And, and, and I want us to leave today with, with, with hope. There, there are, are, are some preachers and they say, look, on Sunday you need to give them hell, right? But, but I don't think the scripture does that because I think the scripture gives us hope. And so that's, that's what I find in Psalm 32 and that's what... That's what I want us to leave with. I want us to leave with hope this morning. Let, let me read this to us. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, for when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And I acknowledged my sin to you and, did, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts or songs of deliverance. Have you ever been pulled over for speeding? 
like the kind of speeding where you know exactly how fast you were going. Like when he comes to the window, he's like, you know how fast? You don't even get that like speeding amnesia or anything. You, you know, you, you know, you have no excuses. There's like no, no one's pregnant in your car, delivering a kidney or anything like that. You're just, you're flat out busted. You were speeding. That's the worst feeling in the world. But how great is it when he comes back and you just get a warning, Right? Well, the blessedness that David's talking about here is infinitely better than that because God doesn't come to us with a a warning and an I'll be watching you speech. He forgives us. And to push that illustration a little bit more, he not only forgives us, he pays the penalty for the speeding, he pays the penalty for the burned out taillight and the billions and billions and billions of other things that are wrong with us. The blessedness in this passage is not ascribed to the diligent law keeper, but the lawbreaker, because they are the ones who experience the grace of forgiveness. The word transgression that's in this passage, it means one who has broken off, one who has taken his own path, one who has rebelled against God's way. And God doesn't say blessed is the one who has never gone their own way because there is no one like that. David says forgiven, that word forgiven, it literally means a barrier removed or a burden taken away. And and I know that in this room this morning, there are people who really struggle being here today because when I use a word like burden or barrier or wall or distance, when it comes to your relationship with God, you're like, that's me, man. That's me. That's why I don't like to come here because the songs make me feel all bad inside. Some of the stuff you're saying makes me feel a little uncomfortable. And God says, look, I am a burden carrier. I am a barrier remover. And through my son, Jesus, I have closed the distance between me and you. And David says, I felt like I was going to die. I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to confess. That's incredibly convicting to me. That's incredibly convicting because there are times when sin isn't that heavy to me. Where I don't feel like, man, I'm going to die unless I confess the sin. And David says, that's how, that's how much sin bothered me. The word confess in the Hebrew is the word for hand. And and here in in this psalm, it carries with it this picture of an open hand where everything is exposed. Um, There is a great American film, a classic work of art um, called The Goonies. I don't don't know if you've ever seen this movie. It's it's really great. But in in The Goonies... um, the kids, the Goonies, they finally get to One-Eyed Willie's pirate ship and find the treasure, only to be intercepted by the Fratellis. Now you wish you'd seen the movie, right? So it's, it's really good. But I don't feel bad for ruining it for you because it came out in 1985. You've had like 30 years to watch it. So, <clears throat> And as they're kind of going, the, 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 mob, the, the mom, the Fratelli mom, is kind of going from kid to kid and taking the, the treasure that they had found, the jewels and the pearls and the gold and all that kind of stuff. And then she gets to this character named Mouth. And Mouth empties all of his pockets, right? He's kind of all this stash of jewels. And his cheeks are all puffed up like this. So she puts her hands in front of his cheeks and he starts to spit out little jewels. 
And, and she, everybody is looking because they can't believe how much mouth has in his mouth. And she pull, at one point she pulls up this huge string of pearls and all this stuff, right? Until finally it's, it's all out and they're overwhelmed at how much he was stashing and holding. That's the picture of confession. That it's all out. God, I'm not hiding any more sin in my back pocket. I don't have any secret compartments in my life. I'm not hiding anything under my tongue. It's all out. Confession means that we don't hold on to our sin. We don't try to cover stuff up. We don't give it names to make it sound better. We don't call it a lie. We call it a half-truth. It's not gossip. We were just taking prayer requests, right? When we confess, we call it like it is. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. And here's what God says about it. I hate it. And here's why I hate it. Because it interrupts our fellowship. Because I have blessing for you. And you're trading blessing for destruction. He says, call it what it is. Turn from it. Come back to me. We have to be open and honest. We have to be raw. We try to season it up and try to marinate it like God won't be able to tell. He's God. You're not going to fool him. You can fool me. You can fool the people in this room. You can feel the fool. fool. (laughs) Easy for you to say. You can fool the people in your small group. But it's God. You can't fool him. And that's good news because he loves you just the same. Verse 6 says, look, pray to God while you have the chance. Remember Noah? God said to Noah, look, I'm going I'm to send a flood, so I need you to build an ark. God says, okay, what are those things? And uh, God says, just, just get busy and, and tell people because this is real. This is coming. And so Noah does. He builds it, and everybody makes fun of Noah, right? And then one day, You see, one day death is coming. And one day the excuse makers are going to stand before God and when they do, they will find out that their excuses will not be accepted. And so we need to ask God to bring a sense of our own sin and of God's righteousness and to live there. And and we need to keep our empty hands held out. So here's what God is, is putting in front of us this morning. Let's lose the argument. Let's admit moment by moment that God is justified, that he will prevail, he's going to win, and it's perfect that way. And let's see, church, what God will do for a bunch of losers who have no complaints left, no demands, nothing but need. Because when you do, when you get to that place, here's what you experience, and it's absolutely glorious. You experience God as your hiding place. You get to a place where you don't have to hide anymore because God is your hiding place. And he calls you out of darkness. And so that's the question. Are you willing today to lose with God so that you can find out how wonderful grace really is? Are you ready to stop making excuses? It's not a matter of if you will or will not sin. You will sin. You will fail. Some of you will fail miserably. 
But what's important is what happens after you fail, the decision that you make there. Will you cover it up? Will you run from it? Will you blame others? Will you blame God? Will you make excuses? Will you deny it? Will you try to soften it up? Because God, if he has a purpose of, of grace for your life, he, he will be so faithful to you that he will not let you win. He will not let you sweep it under the carpet. He will not let you hide in the darkness. But he will be faithful to shine the light of the gospel into your secrets and invite you to come out of hiding and be forgiven. God is saying to you this morning, I will not ungod myself for you. I parted with my son for you, but I will not part with my righteousness for you because I'm God and my wrath is not a passing mood and my mercy is not a lowering of my standards. I am faithful, I am true. And he says, look, in all of my glory, don't you know that there is, there's room for kindness towards you? In fact, there's more room than you think because it was my kindness that sent Jesus Christ to the cross where where the wrath of God and the mercy of God met and settled the only score that ever matters and in our advantage. And so this is what God says this morning. Believe it. Believe in my mercy. Believe in my kindness. Believe in my love. Believe in my grace. Believe in my forgiveness. Receive it. And stop fighting me. Now, if we were in the church where I grew up in, I would lead you in a chorus of just as I am. But talk about mercy, I'm not going to do that for you. But we've got, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes left here this, together this morning. And I don't want us to waste that time. I, I, I hope that this gives you something to think about all week. But I really hope that it gives you something to do right now. We're going to move into a time of communion like we do every week here. We're going to move into a time of worship as well. And I want to give you the opportunity. I want to give you the quiet. I want to give you the stillness, something you probably don't get very often in the hustle and bustle of your week, to confess your sin before God. Just you and him. Just you and him doing business. He already knows everything about it. Stop making excuses. And can we just leave here today, church, individually and corporately saying, God, I'm done making excuses for my sin. Let me pray, and the band will come and lead us, and then we'll get into a time of communion. God, I thank you for um, what we have heard about you this morning, and God, I thank you that it's all true. God, I thank you that the depth of our sin the depth of our rebellion against you, God, is not greater than your grace towards us. God, I, I pray um, now for the person who is struggling just with this concept, God, of confessing sin because that's going to mean that things get really tough. It could mean that it gets tough with a relationship, maybe um, a spouse or family member, friend, neighbor, coworker. Um, God, I just pray that even in this moment they would experience a peace that surpasses understanding. And God, they would know that you are faithful. You do not leave us out to, um, to dry when we confess our sin, God. Your word says that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So God, I'm thankful this morning for your cleansing. And I'm thankful this morning for your forgiveness. 
And now, God, as we sing, we celebrate that. And God, as we take communion, we remember that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.